0: israel and her king in the wilderness shalom welcome to glory and light the podcast of cmj usa where we proclaim the good news of jesus the messiah the revealing light to the nations and the glory of his people israel what is lent and what does it have to do with the jewishness of jesus CMJ contributor Aaron Gann explains how Jesus' 40-day wilderness experience connects with the Israelite wilderness wanderings and points to his identity as the King of Israel. Before we begin, ready to get out of town, ready to stretch those legs and see something new? We thank God that the pandemic has abated, this has allowed CMJ to restart study tours in Israel and beyond. Shoresh Study Tours, a ministry of CMJ Israel, is now booking Israel Tours for 2022 and 2023. Or study a thousand years of Jewish history in Poland this August with David Pilegi, pastor of Christchurch, Jerusalem. Or visit England in September with CMJUK to learn about the Pilgrim Fathers before they made their way to the American colonies. For details on these trips and more, visit cmj-usa.org. And now, Aaron Gann on Lent.
1: For the past several weeks, the Church has been observing the season of Lent. Lent, which comes from a term for lengthening denoting the lengthening of days during the period of spring, Is a time of 40 days beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending on Maundy Thursday when we enter into a period of self-reflection, repentance, and spiritual disciplines. The most common spiritual discipline is that of fasting from particular foods throughout the week. Traditionally, this fasting has been from meat and dairy and other animal products. Though in our modern age, some people choose to abstain from social media, instead choosing to focus that time spent on their own times of self-reflection and prayer. Upon simple observation, however, one may notice that even though it is stated to last for 40 days, Lent goes longer than 40 days. If one is simply looking at a calendar, you will find 46 days set aside for the observance of Lent. So why are there more than 40 days and yet the church insists that there are only 40 days? The reason for this change in number is that Sundays are not considered fast days, but rather feast days, a miniature Easter, if you will, every week, and thus are not counted toward the 40 days of Lent. The difference is like that of the delivery that takes 10 days versus a delivery that takes 10 business days. Both are using 10 days. Both mean this honestly, but they are both defining the 10 days differently and thus calculating the arrival in a different way. So why the number 40? Why is that important? Well, because 40 is often a number associated with repentance, judgment, revelation, and hardship throughout the scriptures. Examples of these include the 40 days of rain during the flood, the 40 days of Moses on Mount Sinai, the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, the 40-day journey of Elijah to Mount Horeb, and the declaration of 40 days till the destruction of Nineveh by Jonah. And due to Lent's relation to Easter, the most relevant period of 40 for observance within the church is that of the 40 days of hardship and temptation that Yeshua endured in the wilderness. Lent is a time when the church identifies with the call of repentance, resistance towards temptation, and preparation for Easter, just as Yeshua underwent John's baptism of repentance was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil and to resist such temptations and to prepare for his public ministry, which would ultimately end in his death, burial, and resurrection on Easter morning. So, what does this observance have to do with the Jewish people? And why are the events remembered during this season important to the Messiahship of Yeshua? Much in every respect. Particularly as it concerns the actual temptations that the Messiah underwent. While it has been observed, rightfully so, that the temptations that Yeshua underwent were similar to the temptations faced by the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, thus identifying him as a second Adam, the temptations he faced also mirror the various trials and failures of the Israelite community during their period in the wilderness. Note that in this podcast, I am not dealing with the question of whether or not. Yeshua could have sinned, but rather looking at what the temptations themselves were during this time in the wilderness, the Lord tested the people of Israel in various ways to humble them and to test their hearts and to see if they truly trusted in the Lord and were loyal to him, such as in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two. These trials can be roughly summed up as trials to trust the Lord when it came to provision trials to trust the Lord when it came to spiritual leadership, and trials to remain faithful to the Lord and trust Him for their inheritance. The order of these trials and failures will be discussed in the order of Yeshua's temptations, as written in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Now, the first of these tests concerns the community of Israel's complaint against the Lord concerning food and water. During their time in the wilderness, the people of Israel had begun to groan and grumble against Moses and the Lord, for taking them into the desert only for him to allow them to perish due to a lack of food and water their solution was to return to Egypt where they had been slaves and if they wouldn't if they were not going to return to Egypt they spent much of their time lamenting the time when they were slaves and while it was under much harsh labor they were provided for now this is a legitimate fear for a large group of people traveling in an unhospitable place and one should not miss the seriousness of no food or water, particularly for such a large community. Nevertheless, this is shown as a failure in the books of the Torah because of their lack of faith. The Lord had just delivered them from Egypt. He had protected them from many of the plagues that he had struck the Egyptians with, including saving their firstborn children from the destroyer. It should have gone without saying that he would certainly have provided food for them even if they needed to request it. He told them that he would bring them safely to the promised land, and basic food and water would be included in that deliverance. However, the community of Israel did not view it that way, but complained to the Lord rather than entreating him. He provided for them first manna and then quail. This quail, born out of dissatisfaction with the provisions that the Lord had given them, resulted In the death of many people when the Lord disciplined them. Yeshua faced a similar test. When being very hungry, the devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. This was something that Yeshua, being God in the flesh, could do. If he created the world from nothing, he could turn the stones into bread. However, for Yeshua, the question was not his divine ability to perform this miracle, but rather if he would trust the Father to provide food for him. He had been listening to the Father's instructions since he was a child, and after his baptism the Holy Spirit had led him to the wilderness. Hence his reply, in the negative, that man does not live only by bread, but by the word that proceeds from God. The Father's instructions would sustain him. The Father would be the one who provided for him. The second test concerns the people of Israel's complaint against the Lord concerning the leadership of Moses. During the time that the Israelites were wandering throughout the wilderness, the people became dissatisfied with Moses, the man whom the Lord had raised for them to be a Messiah And their generation, as said in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 26. Moses had been sent by the Lord and represented the Lord himself to Pharaoh with his brother Aaron as his prophet, as said in Exodus, chapter 7, verse 1. He had been the instrument through which the Lord's proclamation, let my people go, came to the king of Egypt, and he had led the people out of the land, across the Red Sea, into the mountain of God to worship him, receive the law, and build the tabernacle. However, during their time in the wilderness, the people began to grumble against Moses and his brother Aaron. The people were thirsty, and grumbled against Moses, and demanded water from him, to which Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people had begun to question Moses' leadership, causing Moses to fear for his very life. The people were testing the Lord and coming up against the leadership that the Lord had established. This attitude throughout the wilderness wanderings culminated in the incident of Korah's rebellion, in which a whole multitude of Israelites were swallowed alive by the earth. Even Moses himself failed in this regard, trusting the Lord and his leadership. As, in his frustration at their rebellion against the Lord and their constant striving against him, he chose to strike the rock that would give water, rather than speaking to it. In short, he chose to do it his way, in anger at his people who were no longer receiving him, rather than as the Lord had ordained it to happen. Indeed, while the Lord had said that he would give them water, Moses claimed the credit for it, stating that he and Aaron would bring the water such as in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10. The Lord kept his word to the Israelites, but this failure of Moses brought upon him the discipline of not entering into the promised land himself. Yeshua too faced a similar temptation in his time in the wilderness. The second test from the devil was that of proving his messiahship. We are told that Satan took him up to the very peak of the temple, a place where if he were to fall, he would certainly die. Now remember that Yeshua, while being God in the flesh, was a fully unglorified man and was capable of dying, as was proven on the cross. However, the Messiah was promised to be delivered from harm from natural causes, such as the promise, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This comes from Psalm 91, verses 11-12. through And this is the psalm that the devil quoted to Yeshua in order to test him. For Yeshua, this would be a twofold temptation. First, it would prove to the devil that he was indeed the Messiah, and Yeshua would be vindicated. He would prove this by forcing the Father's hand in delivering him from danger. However, I believe this would have served another purpose it would have brought the people to the belief that Yeshua was the Messiah. The temple was quite a busy place, and the fact of a man throwing himself off the pinnacle, only to be miraculously saved by angelic hosts, would leave little doubt that this was the long-awaited Messiah. Yeshua would be tempted to be accepted as the Messiah of his people without being rejected and being received by his own. Yeshua, then, would be tempted to not follow the Lord's leading in his life, but rather follow his own leading. Like Moses and the striking of the rock, he could do something, not of the father's commands, and yet have him keep his promise regardless. He would not have to undergo the rejection that would follow his ministry. He would not have to endure the heartache of his brothers and sisters turning their backs on him. He could instead take it into his own hands and be accepted by his people and show Satan that he was the anointed one of God. However, Yeshua replied that he simply was not to put the father to the test in such a way. He would not force the father's hand and instead would walk in complete faith and not do anything outside of his father's will. The third and final temptation of Yeshua is connected to two separate tests that the children of Israel faced in the wilderness, idolatry and trusting God for their inheritance. First, Israel was tempted to look to other gods to worship aside from the Lord alone. This idea of worshiping the Lord and him alone is of such importance in the Lord's instruction to Israel that it is the first and second commandments of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which state that they should have no other gods before him, and that they should not make an image of anything that is on the earth, above the earth, or in the waters below the earth. This idea was that important and foundational for the people of Israel. And yet, it was something that they continuously failed in regards to. While there is some debate as to whether the golden calf constituted strict idolatry or wrong worship to the Lord, such as Nadab and Abihu and the strange fire, they did make an image of a creature and did offer worship to it despite their intentions. The Lord considered this a violation of the covenant they had just made by worshiping it such as in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 10, commented on by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 32, and by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 40 and 41. Likewise, near the end of their wanderings, the children of Israel began to marry into the Moabites after a time and worship their gods, an act that only ceased after Phinehas drove a spear through two worshippers of Baal. The story is about in Numbers 25. They also failed to trust the Lord in receiving their inheritance. Shortly after their time at Mount Sinai, after the construction of the tabernacle, the people journeyed to take their inheritance, that is, the land of Canaan. What follows is the event commonly known as the Twelve Spies. Moses had sent twelve men to spy out the land of Canaan, and upon returning, proclaimed that the land was indeed as prosperous. As was told, two of these men then encouraged the people of Israel that they could indeed take it, that the Lord was with them, that they would defeat the Canaanites and bring in for themselves the inheritance that the Lord had promised. But the other ten disagreed and insisted that they could not conquer the land from the giants who were inhabiting the land. Well, the crowds agreed with the ten and they rebelled against the Lord and sought to kill Moses. And for this... For their failure to trust the Lord, to give them the land that he had promised in the way that he had promised, they were disciplined by being forced to wander for 40 years, with all those, 20 years old and over, doomed to perish in the wilderness, aside from Joshua and Caleb. Okay, so why does any of this matter? Why does it matter to the Jewish people that Yeshua underwent these temptations and came out without sin? But the answer to this is found in the book of Numbers, in which the seer Balaam gives a prophecy concerning the people of Israel. One of the characteristics he establishes for Israel and her coming king is that, in broad strokes, the Messiah would emulate the history of Israel. In Yeshua's life, we see this. Examples of this would include that just as Moses escaped destruction amid infanticide by escaping to Egypt, so too did the Messiah escape infanticide by escaping to Egypt. Just as Israel was later called out of Egypt, so too would her king be called out of Egypt. Just as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, undergoing various trials and temptations, and then entering the land of Canaan, so too was Yeshua in the wilderness for 40 days, undergoing various trials and temptations in preparation for his ministry in the land of Israel. However, there is one key difference Whereas the community of Israel's history has primarily been one of failure, the legacy of Israel's messianic king would be that of victory. Throughout the Psalms, this messianic figure says, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped, such as in Psalm 17, verse 5. Israel's king would be the son of David and would be David's greater son. Whereas David, while being one of the greatest kings, In all the history of Israel, ultimately brought strife and division to his household and his people through his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Yeshua does not stumble and instead makes his followers righteous by bearing their sins. He has, on his people's behalf, the Jewish people's behalf, undergone the same trials that they have undergone, but he has conquered and thus can rule the nation in righteousness, and truth, in a way that no other Davidic descendant or even David himself could claim. So today, while we await the return of Messiah, when his people shall no longer reject him, but instead will proclaim with Yeshua and to Yeshua, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from Psalm 118, verse 26. Let us pray for the Jewish people during this season of Lent. First, let us pray that there would be peace in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and in all the places that the Jewish people dwell, that they would dwell in safety, and the gospel would go forth freely. Secondly, let us pray that as they hear the gospel, they would see their Messiah truly and come to faith in him, not hardening their hearts as their fathers did in the wilderness, but instead finding their true rest in him, and that the veil over their eyes would be lifted. Thirdly, and finally, let us pray for ourselves, the Church, that as we have entered into a period of self-reflection and repentance, that any hatred for the Jewish people, or any arrogance or contempt that might be in the hearts of any of us, would be rooted out during this holy season of Lent, and we would resist the temptation of boasting in our own election. Instead, let us remember that the Jewish people are beloved for the sake of their fathers, as said in Romans chapter 11, verse 28. And are the Messiah's own kinsmen according to the flesh, again from Romans chapter 9, verse 5. And that instead of contempt, let us share the good news of Yeshua the Messiah in thought, word, and deed. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. Our theme music is Still You by Joel Lupus via filmmusic.io. To learn more about CMJ USA, to sign up for our newsletters, or to make a donation, visit cmj-usa.org. cmj-usa.org. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you.